If it's like your classic short gray, I think they're like four feet tall. Okay, maybe five. They're like, oh, you went from two to five. Well, because I was thinking they were the same size as me. That like a tall gray. Yeah, like I was thinking like I was fighting someone the same size as me, and I might be able to fight two people. But Wait, if you think you could little... beat up two people your size? Yeah. So like two of me, you could beat up. I meant like two Samanthas attacking. So me. then, how could you beat up two of yourself? It is by definition two of you. It should be twice as powerful. But it's two separate versions of me. They're not attached. Yeah, but why Why do you think you could beat up <laughs> two versions of yourself and not just exactly tie one of you? Because it's, it's you. I don't know. It seems like it made sense at the time. <laughs> how many can you do? How many Samanthas could I fight? Yeah. Or how many <laughs> aliens? How many aliens? Tall whites. Tall whites? I don't know about the tall whites. Can't they run really fast too? I don't know. I, I don't know much about tall whites. I thought that was the one that could run like 100 kilometers an hour. That's something. possible. But they're like all um, aloof and above us. They wouldn't fight us. They'd be like, oh, you silly little thing. Small greys though, I think I could beat up like five small greys. They have weak little legs, I think. Oh. So I just start kicking knees. Yeah. Get them to the floor. Then you know what? They're they're like 30% eyeball. Then you start kicking faces. Then I think eyes. I could fight like five five small greys. Yeah. Lots of kicking. I'm good at kicking. All my strengths in my legs. Good to know for when I have to fight two of you. <laughs> but a reptilian? I'm like, look up here. Look up here. I'm waving my arms in the air because this is a podcast. You can't see me. <laughs> But as you said, this is a podcast. Podcast. It's called I Love This, You Should Too. My name is India Randawa, and with me is my alien fighting co-host, Miss Samantha Hees. You can't, if, when you do that, they can't tell that you're doing a thing. Oh, sorry. I was punching yeah. triumphantly. It's and good. now I'm here with you, my love, and we're going to talk about India. But more specifically... The Darjeeling Limited. Well, let's get into it then. I said that I liked this movie a lot after I saw it one time. Maybe I said the word love because that is the name of the podcast. I think you loved it. And I, I like it. I still think it holds up. I don't get why it's the most hated of his movies. Actually, maybe I do get why. And I feel like when I explain what I like about this movie throughout this podcast, it's going to be a lot of me arguing with someone who's not here mm -hmm. like pointing out i get what you think is wrong with this but let me tell you why you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> well to avoid all that i'm gonna agree with you you like it like lot. it like it a lot it was it was very enjoyable to watch it was cool to see um the like colors and the opulence that i come to expect from um a movie by wes anderson and i think uh, I didn't love it, but you have convinced me before from really like to love. So here we go. So then let's start off with what do you think is stopping you from getting to that level? Are there little criticisms you have or just on a whole, it didn't quite get you there? On a whole, it didn't quite get me there. I enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed like the look of it, but I don't know. It just felt... A little disjointed to me and maybe just didn't quite hit in the right places that I'm like used to. Tell me more about that because I think I kind of agree with you. The flow and the tone of this movie 
is a little odd. Mm-hmm. Like, we get our big, heavy, sad moment right in the middle of the film, mm-hmm. and then that has a flashback sandwiched in the middle of it. The act structure of this movie is a little strange. It's a little different than what we're used mm-hmm. to, I think. So that's kind of like, because you start out, and their dads died, and they have all this, like, matching luggage, and you don't get explained, like, that doesn't get explained until, like, most of the way through the movie. It made it hard to get absorbed into the story, because I kept thinking, like, did I know that? Did I miss something? Am I, like, not understanding this movie at all? Which, like, wouldn't be an unusual thing for movies that you bring me. So I was like, is this another, like, movie that I just don't get? Am I, like, not smart enough for this movie? But then things get explained, but I think I took me out too much thinking about the structure and about whether or not I'd already missed something that I found it very hard to like get into the world of the movie. Yeah, I I get where you're coming from because a director like Wes Anderson, who is an artificial director, I don't want him to say like phony, but he takes on a lot of artistic liberties, puts Mm -hmm. a lot of artifice into his movies because he he values that style. And I think it is a, a style that works very well, but it's not the real world as we see it, right? right? I get how you can look at something like his work and then get caught up in the fact that it is a movie and have the expectations of a film and not just go along with the story. Right. And I knew, like, Wes Anderson is kind of a more... I feel like fancy is the wrong word, but, like, he's, like, a more studied, like, film studies kind of a more stylized yeah. director so he's very specific in the way that he makes a movie and for a second i thought i just don't get his style and i think you kind of had the same thing when you're watching uh chungking express yeah wong kar wai another very stylized yeah. director so maybe it's just accepting the style as something separate from the story mm-hmm. when it's not something we're used to. It's a, it takes a little bit of work to kind of do that. Yeah, I think that may be it. And I think that that like takes away a little bit from the movie, which is why I quite like I didn't quite get to love. Maybe this, along with Chunking Express that you said, would be much better upon a second viewing. Maybe. Because I watched a good bit of it again today as I was kind of preparing my notes And there are a lot of things, like the luggage you were talking about, that you appreciate them early in the movie, because you get the the follow-through and the explanation later in the movie. But would you say that you got uh, distracted by material objects in this movie, and that kind of kept you away from appreciating the true core of it? Maybe. Just like the three of them. I knew that. That's why I was smiling as you were talking. (laughs) Because there is a a whole lot of that. But let's talk about it in kind of acts, maybe. So we have the beginning section where it's these three brothers on a train, and it's just them being dicks for Mm -hmm. like a half hour. Right. How did you like this section of it? I thought it was funny. This was was something this, and then like the last 20 minutes of the movie, maybe, were like, probably my favorite parts because there wasn't anything I was super guessing about. That's very uh, not odd. That's something. (laughs) I don't know. It's very what? But I really loved that middle sequence. And 
about 80% of what I have written down in my notes is all about that like 20 minute middle part. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about this beginning section. I did find it really entertaining and I thought it was a good way to get into it because Mm -hmm. I feel like you get to know these characters very quickly. Yeah, you definitely get some of their like proclivities right off the bat. I like a lot of the character work in this better than a lot of other Wes Anderson movies. And that's not to say that I like these characters, because I don't. They're very (laughs) unlikable, especially at the beginning. Um, But with most directors who have this really stylized approach to filmmaking, the character work tends to suffer. And maybe not suffer. I don't think it's something that's wrong with the movies. But I think if you look at the work of uh, Wes Anderson, or I always talk about how I love Kubrick, very stylized both of them they have a sort of detachment from the characters yeah it's like you're watching i was gonna say it's like you're watching a movie but it is like you're watching wait a a minute it's like you're watching kubrick's or anderson's puppets up there okay and they are more an extension of the director rather than characters themselves Mm -hmm. does that make sense Mm, yeah but i don't think that's the case in this movie I don't feel like the three of them are just branches of Wes Anderson serving his style. I feel like each one of them is their own person. And they just feel like such brothers to me. They do. Um, It's really funny because, like, looking at them, they don't really look like brothers. I think there's a lot of similarities, Uh, I could see Jason Schwartzman and Adrian Brody being brothers. But Brody and uh, Wilson have that kind of thin, long nose. That Owen Wilson has? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. They just seemed kind of too wacky, but then I remember that not everyone looks exactly the same in a family. Like your family. Not... Everybody in your family looks the same. So it's just something I kind of was like, eh, I don't really believe them as brothers. And then I was like, okay, I'm getting I'm getting over it. I'm just getting into the story. I believe them as brothers right away because of how they interact with each other. For sure. I don't think it's ever explicitly said in the movie, but you're. it's very clear that Owen Wilson is the oldest, Adrian Brody is the middle, and Jason Schwartzman is the youngest. Right. I don't think they say it, but it seemed so clear to me. Owen Wilson takes charge of everything. I love his bits about how he just decides, like, let's be friends again. And I've created an itinerary for our spiritual discovery. Mm-hmm. And he, he orders for all of them. And he even says at one point, like, did I raise us? I feel like I raised us. <laughs> and the two of them were like, no, not at all. No. <laughs> and... The, then the second brother comes along, and he's the contrarian. Adrian Brody is always ag- against what Owen Wilson's doing. Yeah. And he's the one who's, I would say, most affected by the father's death, is taking it taking it the mm-hmm. hardest. And then Schwartzman is the youngest, and he's kind of a peacemaker between the two of them. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any strong objections either way, but he seems the one that's the most lost and just kind of goes with what other people are doing. Right. And although each one of them is very different... I fully believe they all came from the same family. Mm-hmm. They're different people, but they all seem to have shared a common past. And I'm not sure if the director or if the writers, which was um, Anderson, uh, Schwartzman, and uh, Coppola, one of the Coppolas. Uh, what's his first name? Anyways, that Francis? one. Francis. 
No, 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 not Francis. <laughs> not Francis Ford Coppola. The, uh, um, but the, that family. Oh, okay. Anyway. I don't know anyone other than Sophia. Yeah, that's the daughter. That's the only two that I know. And then there's this other one, and then um, Anderson and Schwartzman are mixed. It's it's a big family. Nick Cage is actually a Coppola. Really? Yeah, his real name is Nicholas Coppola. What? Yeah, it's a big, big film family. Wow, I didn't know that. The Um, only reason I know Francis and Sophia is because Francis Ford Coppola has a winery, and he (laughs) named one of his wines Sophia. Also The Godfather? No? No. All right, we'll get there. (laughs) Now I really feel like I need to choose that pretty quick, but um, but it feels like this was informed by people that were three brothers. I just I totally believed them as a family. Mm-hmm. I as I got to know them, I definitely felt them as a family. When I first saw them all together, I didn't. But then, like you said, as they started to interact and as they started to have their little things, you could kind of see how they all clicked together. Then definitely. You got distracted by the superficial and didn't appreciate what was underlying. I think what this podcast is telling us is that I'm very superficial. No, no, I'm. <laughs> I, that's not what I mean. I mean that's like the the theme of these characters, right? Mm-hmm. Because in the first act, there's they spend so much time on their material possessions. They're talking about the glasses, the suitcases, the razors. They're they're always obsessed with like belts and things like that and it's not until they stop with all of that and actually have the spiritual journey thrust upon them that they're able to grow in any sort of way yeah but we'll get there there. (laughs) i feel like i am very superficial because i spent my day picking out sparkly things to go with my wedding dress you like sparkles i do like sparkles it's nothing wrong with liking what you like true if i like sitting and thinking that's just as valuable valuable as looking at sparkles. True. Both serve nobody but ourselves. <laughs> very true. Right? But it made me very happy. Yeah. If I, if someone just sits and philosophizes all day, we think like, oh, that's a noble pursuit. It serves nothing. No. It only serves themselves. Yeah. I'm very self-serving, but I just do it in a way <laughs> that uh, people are like, oh, oh, cool, huh? Yours just seems fancier than mine. Yeah, it's not. No. It's not at all. <laughs> and again, that's my thesis for this whole uh, podcast is uh, everything's just as valuable. Mm. Mac and me, the Godfather. <laughs> it's all great. Oh, Mac and me. Your favorite romantic comedy. Oh, I love Mac and me. It was so romantic when that alien <laughs> wanted to date that little boy in a wheelchair. <laughs> Classic love story. So one of the things I worried about in this movie, in my second rewatching now, that if I would appreciate the things that are often described as quirky. I tend to really hate heavy-handed quirkiness and heavy-handed symbolism. Right. I would argue this movie has both. It's true. I, as you were saying that, I was like, no, but this is like, that is Wes Anderson, though. True. That That's like Wes Anderson to a T, other than how, like, colorful and beautiful his sets always are. I think you like overtly quirkiness and symbolism. I like symbolism, but I'm going to try to defend the quirkiness of this film. I think this is the limit. Okay. I don't think this gets into Juno territory. I think that their little quirks are derived from something 
in the character, and mm-hmm. I think they have real-world payoff. And I think that's the difference okay. from just answering a hamburger phone and being like, hey, home slice, I'm quirky. Fucking Juno. I hate that movie. Uh, <laughs> oh, rethinking my pick for next week. <laughs> oh, I would love to talk about Juno. <laughs> no, but I don't want this to be another Bride Wars situation. <laughs> but you hated Bride Wars. I did. But you would also hate Juno if you watch it again. Uh, yeah, you're right. We should do Juno. I'd be I'd be thrilled to do Juno. Okay, we'll talk about it later. But uh, what are some of the the quirky little bits about this movie that you feel are are overt? Um, I liked like like we were talking about the brothers and their little things. Some yes. of the bits that I liked um, was like Owen Wilson deciding what everyone was going to eat mm-hmm. and be like, if you want this, put up your hand, and then. Um, was that Angelica Houston? Yes. Uh, her doing that exact same thing, like, that was funny. I like that a lot because it, it shows what a lot of this movie is about. And it's about abandonment and trying to cope with that. Yeah. And they were abandoned by their parents. And Owen Wilson's way of coping with that is... Taking over. Is taking yeah. over and doing it himself. Yeah, exactly. So, again, I feel like that... Th- I, I like that because it's a character-based thing. Yeah. You could talk about Adrian Brody's use of the glasses and how stupid that is, Mm -hmm. that he's wearing prescription glasses all the time. Yeah. And that's probably the limit of what I'm willing to forgive. But there's one thing that made it more forgivable, and that's that it gives him headaches. Yeah. If he just had the glasses and like, look, it's my dad's glasses. But the fact that it gives him headaches is like that next little step where it's not as overt. It's showing that there are real world consequences to to their little idiosyncrasies and that his inability to deal with the loss of his father has consequences for him Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I thought was kind of funny and was when I kind of started believing that they were like brothers was when they were kind of passing around the pain medication. Yeah, that was good. I like that. They all had a little like nighttime ritual and part of it was just taking medication before bed and they were like, Oh, here and then they take the next thing and like take some of that and then take the next thing (laughs) and then they'd all get into bed and turn off the light. And that's what helped make it feel very much like a family because things like that are so normal for the three of them. But to me, that's like a crazy thing to do. But I think it's funny. But I'm forgiving of these quirks and I don't think they get into the silly... Well, maybe they are silly, but I don't think they get gratuitous because I appreciate that there are things like like the glasses, like him going and getting this poisonous snake, Mm -hmm. that all of these things are not just like cute and romantic. They have real world consequences. And I think that's what separates it from those movies from your hamburger phones in Juno. Right? There's like a point to it. It serves the story and it serves the character. Right. And yet it is kind of silly a lot of the time. But if you do those two things, I'm going to forgive it, especially in a movie like this, which is so stylized that it's not reality. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson's world is not our world. It's something a little bit different. So if these characters are a little bit more over the top than in like a crime drama, I'm going to forgive it because that comes along with like these saturated colors everything being Mm -hmm. symmetrical and pristine in in a lot of ways that's just another facet of this world that he's created so that's why i'm uh forgiving of these obvious 
quirks and over-the-top things like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's also some symbolism that's over the top, but I guess we'll address that when we get to that point. Of yeah, the, for sure, the for sure. Are there any other moments from this kind of first act on the train that you liked a lot or didn't like? I don't know. I didn't like the snake. <laughs> That's personal preference, though. Um, I don't know. I I feel like at that point I wasn't making a decision on whether or not I liked the movie. I always try to give it like a good length of time before I make like a decision. Sure, but not decision-based. You can still have things that you enjoyed in that sequence or did not. I liked their little cabin room in the train. It was very close quarters and like it could seem manufactured to make them like have all those little neurotic things come out because you're so close and these are like grown men who probably aren't used to sharing a room anymore. So like like it was almost manufactured to make all that happen. And it kind of reminded me of is there a Wes Anderson movie where kids at camp? Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. Cause it's like bunk beds and like... Right. Yeah, like that kind of was what I was thinking of. But yeah, it, it was almost like childlike sleeping arrangements with like the bunk beds and them being in such a tiny little room. And when you're with your siblings, I feel like they all kind of revert to their childhood yes. selves. Yeah, and that's exactly what it seemed like. And I feel like they also put up very unguarded versions of themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't pretend to be something you're not with somebody who you like were in diapers with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's definitely a like reverting to how it was, how it always was, right? Like that's like the good old days, that kind of thing. And they they definitely seem to revert back to all their little like fights and dislikes of each other and also like a nice sense of brotherly love. Maybe later. I feel I don't. I didn't feel the brotherly love coming through in that first third. Maybe I'm like maybe not brotherly love, but like them kind of clicking back into the space that they've always occupied in the relationship. That's yeah, very true. Like back into their brotherly roles. Roles, yeah. Mm-hmm. Roles is a better word, but yeah, like they really seem like they're like, okay, well, this is who I am, and this is who you've always been, and this is where I go, and then all of a sudden they're just like, here you go. <laughs> and I think that also makes some of those more overt symbolic things more forgivable because they have reverted to this childlike stage almost. Yeah. So, and they they speak their minds so clearly. I forgive a lot of that overt symbolism because they don't realize it. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, like they yeah. they are so quick to say exactly how they feel, and yet they are also very willing to ignore the obvious. And that's why some of the symbolism, like the dropping of the luggage, mm-hmm. it gets into the realm of dramatic irony because we see it. Yeah. Us viewers completely understand their relationship and we wish we could just tell them like, look, here's what you guys need to do, but they can't figure it out on Stop their own. Stop doing that. They have to take yeah. that time. and And he's... He's trying to figure it out on his own. Uh, Owen Wilson's character, he's so desperate to find meaning, but in that desperation looking for meaning, they ignore all of the obvious things. Mm-hmm. Like there's that uh, bit about when the train gets lost and they said, we haven't located us yet. And he <laughs> jumps on that saying like, oh, that's a sign. And he's like looking for all of these signs and everything's a sign to him. 
But when his brothers tell him something so directly, he doesn't acknowledge that. So that's a really roundabout way for me to say, like, I'm willing to forgive them throwing away their luggage and dropping the baggage of that relationship, which is so apparent and so obvious Mm -hmm. because these characters have desperately been trying to find that meaning and constantly missing it, that putting in these really obvious things, I think it's almost a uh, a playful way that Anderson is going about doing it, not telling us, the audience, like, get it, luggage. He's telling the characters almost, and mm-hmm. the characters are blind to it for so much of the movie. True, true. Maybe I'm over-justifying a really heavy-handed image, but I, I think there's more to it. For as skilled as Anderson is with other things, the bits about, well, looks like I got some more healing to do. Like, I'm sure so many people roll their eyes at that. Like, yes, I get it. You need to heal. It's a metaphor for healing. It's not that clever. (laughs) But because there's all these layers of them looking for symbols and signs Mm -hmm. and being unwilling to see them, I feel like he's more playing with that idea. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I think there's more to it than just that surface symbolism. Oh, for sure. I think that that is very true. And... (laughs) I kind of liked the I guess I have more healing to do so I don't know what that says about me but it was like a nice moment where he kind of realizes that he's not over everything that they've covered in the movie yeah and I know that it is heavy-handed but I think it works because we wanted to get him to that point Mm -hmm. I don't think it's subtle at all but we've wanted Owen Wilson's character to get to that point and then when he does we don't really care about him not being the most subtle poetically we care about him accepting things and growing because they've been so hesitant and unwilling Mm. to do that and they've been trying to I should say but going about it in the completely wrong way that when they actually get that little bit of uh of self-discovery i'm i'm on their side and i want them to get that even if it's not subtle i do remember thinking at the beginning of the movie i was like i don't know how i could like cheer for these guys but then by the end of the movie when they're throwing the suitcases away and they're like running for the train and like i was on their side yeah i agree i i hate them for the first third of the movie So I want to bring up my least favorite part, maybe, of this entire movie. It comes then, and it's Schwartzman's relationship with the woman on the train. Mm -hmm. That grossed me out. Yeah. I did not like it. I felt he was a real creep. I feel like that scene didn't need to be in the movie. For sure. No, Um, I I agree with that. That was something that I felt like was was a throwaway thing. It didn't add to the, like, movie as a whole. It was just something weird that he chose to put in. His character is the hardest for me to reconcile. I don't quite get where he's coming from. There is a short film called uh, Hotel Chevalier that is about Schwartzman's character and Natalie Portman's character, who we see for about half a second in this movie. Uh Uh-huh. And that's the girlfriend that he's always talking to on the phone or checking her messages. But that relationship is not exactly spelled out for us and i'm not sure why he's acting that way to the woman on the train 
And mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that's supposed to tell us about him. It, it doesn't really add anything to the whole movie that he just wants to have sex with women. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's not like, oh, he has issues or, well, like, think, anything that gets called back on. I think there is subtle hints to him being so hurt with the way he's been treated by this unseen Natalie Portman character that he is trying to be Mm -hmm. mean. Yeah. He's trying to take it out on women, perhaps. Yeah. Because then he writes that short story about him and her. And Adrian Brody says, like, I like how mean you were. And he uh, does his line that he always says, like, oh, it's based on fictional, fictitious characters. But he stops himself and says, thanks. Yeah. So there is something there, but I maybe not, that's something that I need to rewatch yeah. now that you've seen the end to go back and try to get what was going on there. It's not fleshed out enough for me. No. Also, I have like I always have the like Google page up for the movie when we're talking about it, just so I have like actors' names and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that Natalie Portman was Jack's ex girlfriend. There is this short film that you can watch with it. I chose not to do it. Oh, is she in it? Yes. It's the two of them in a hotel room. It's like five, ten minutes long. It's kind of the scene that he writes at the end. Mm -hmm. It's that. Okay. That also was a little bit icky. I didn't like the the short because it, if there's ever a part in a movie where a woman gets like fully nude or near nude and the man is still fully dressed yeah it's weird i don't i think it's creepy i I think it's like a weird power thing it is a weird power thing like take your clothes off yeah i'm gonna like be in my suit yeah i don't i don't like but either way that icked me out and so did his relationship with the uh (laughs) with the woman on the train yeah for sure like he licks his finger that one time yeah that's it just it seems not of this movie i think I feel like part of the reason that he's so gross is because they were trying to make them not all good, right? Like, well, nice I think guys. nobody is is good. I don't know if anyone is straight up evil. They're all like deeply, deeply flawed. Of course, but, but like you have like they can't all just be like searching for their happy ending. I guess. Well, aren't they? But I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, maybe I don't. Okay, so I feel like if you have three main characters, like we do, I feel like the like for a movie like this, you can't have three characters who all have the same resolution at the end. No, no, and I don't think any two of them do. But I feel like they all have to start from different points in their journey, right? Like. Adrian Brody is coming to terms with the fact that he has a son and he finally tells his mom, I have to tell you about my son. And like, he finally has the little sweater and like, it's cute. And he kind of comes to terms with his life as it is and then wants to go back to his wife. And like, Jason Schwartzman figures out that he doesn't need to be mom or dad or mom and dad to everybody. Do you mean Owen Wilson? Yes. Owen Wilson. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Owen Wilson um, figures out that he, like, doesn't need to be everybody's mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of comes into himself and figures out a few things for himself. And I feel like Jason Schwartzman starts from, like, a way farther back place because he's kind of gross and creepy and, like, then comes and meets the brothers at their, like, kind of resolution, I guess. His seemed to be the least clear journey to me, Schwartzman's. True. When you said that and you pointed out how different their journeys, Mm -hmm. all three of them are, it made me realize I think it's the same. 
What do you mean? I think it's all about abandonment. Wilson's character is trying to replace the parent that has abandoned him. Right. Adrian Brody got married assuming he would get divorced and now doesn't know what to do now that he has a child. Uh-huh. And he even says, I think he has a line about why he thinks that way. It's like, it's the way we are raised. Yeah. We are raised to believe you will be abandoned. Yeah. So his comes to that as well. Yeah. Schwartzman's is a little less clear, but I think there is definitely, a, there's these ideas about him following a woman around the world and she keeps leaving mm-hmm. and he keeps leaving so they are quite literally abandoning one another taking I turns doing i feel that. like his like whole casual sex storyline is very much like he wants to feel like he's doing the leaving because natalie portman keeps leaving yes. him and so he feels and like his mother left him and that yeah exactly so i feel like that's how he's gaining his like feeling of control back not that it's actual control but he feels like he's like it's one thing that he can control. I'm getting off the train now. <laughs> but then it was the strangest thing that he says to her when he leaves, thank you for using me. I think he's acknowledging that he has some like kind of screwed up feelings towards like hooking up. Yeah. And he's also trying to like make certain that she knows that this isn't like a thing. Well, I think that wasn't in question, but yeah. I, I'm sure there's people out there listening right now and going yelling at this podcast saying like his journey is so clear it's blah 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 but i i didn't quite see his journey all the way through yeah like he it was like it was a murkier one for sure i don't know why it it took until this conversation right now to realize like yeah this whole movie is about abandonment issues that's what it's about it very much is because there is moments earlier on in the movie that you don't quite get the gravity of like when Adrian Brody reads the short story in the bathroom, because it's the story about the day of his father's funeral. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that's dealing with that the, the hardest. And that's one of my favorite shots in the first third of the movie. Mm. It's like straight on, as they do a few times in this movie. And it's Adrian Brody in the bathroom reading that story and crying. Right. And when you watch it the first time, you don't quite get it but then we get to see this flashback and we get to realize the importance of when he's saying like oh i didn't yell like that or oh you really captured the moment and then we get to see the flashback actually happen and we know what the story was about and it just uh infuses a lot more gravity and meaning into this shot of a man crying in the bathroom 30 minutes earlier in the movie yeah that was definitely like a powerful thing like they were trying to be all macho and grown up for each other until they all got like comfortable again i'm now i'm theorizing wildly but that bill murray beginning yeah do you have any thoughts on that not really before i was just like it's just a funny bit he works with bill murray all the time that's kind of what i was thinking but now since we're like theorizing all this abandonment stuff isn't bill murray the representation of a father figure the ever absent father figure yeah because he is like older than them clearly Mm -hmm. and then he's the one that doesn't quite get to the train true he's always absent they're always missing him (gasps) just like us the viewer is just waiting for bill murray to be there like you showed me bill murray i want some bill murray that's like that natalie portman well we only get the shot of natalie portman at the end so we don't know what we're missing with her true but it's just like there's like these this famous person at the beginning of the movie and yeah i did definitely think that he was gonna catch another train and like see them or at least be in like maybe that shopping sequence where they're in the the big shopping place Mm -hmm. 
bizarre. Sure. Okay. That is the word they would they use. Okay, I was like, I don't know what to call it. Um, but yeah, like I almost expected him to like walk through a scene or something, yeah. like because he's always in those movies. So I he's the absent father figure oh. for the audience. Whoa, whoa! Oh, I don't know. I think that kind of works. It kind of does. So then they're eventually thrown off the train, and that kind of brings up a big part, a big change in the movie. So there's the part about the boy dying in the village, and it's much more serious than the rest of the movie. And usually this part would come closer to the end of the movie because they're kind of concluding everything, and that would be their big uh, epiphany moment. Mm -hmm. But in this one, it comes pretty much halfway. So how did you feel about that happening so early or just at a different place than we would normally expect it. I think that was one of the reasons why I found this movie hard to like sink into because I didn't, I was like, oh, well, that was like a big almost resolution and then felt very like disjointed because I was like, well, I don't know where the movie's going to go from here. So I felt kind of confused. Yeah, I think this, for me at least, this part works because it's a entire reset for these characters because the first third is them trying to force a spiritual journey Uh which of course is something that you can't and that's why i still think that this movie is like wes anderson's take on those airport novels where people discover themselves in india or wherever right the eat pray loves of the world yeah i've never actually read that one so i don't know maybe it's actually good i I got like halfway through and was like this is dumb but in this world, it's acknowledged that that's not something that's possible. Mm-hmm. So I like the take that he has on on that spiritual journey right. because it's the answer is like, no, you can't just go to India and have a spiritual journey. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. And after this whole village sequence, they can finally like focus on their own relationship or the relationship with their mother. So it uh, it really changes the focus after this point because they're no longer searching for adventure because they had some sort of adventure thrust upon them right so first of all i love uh irfan khan's performance in this he plays the the father of the boy who dies right and he only speaks right at the beginning of it and even then it's not in english but somehow like he's he was just so good in the the short amount of screen time he has Uh that I, I I felt for that character. For sure. Yeah, I uh, I really liked that whole village scene. And I know you have a lot to say about it, so I won't get into it now. But Please. Oh, is it village scene? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, yeah, so I loved that whole scene um, where they, like, decide to go to the funeral and they really seem like they're bonding with these people and they're letting their guards down and kind of deciding to just like experience everything that's going to happen around them i really like that yeah because before this we had them in these like fancy dining cars with german women and all of the indian people were servants because they were working on the train and now we get to the village and the villagers aren't treated like oh these are exotic people or something they're treated exactly as as the three of them are by the by the film itself that is uh-huh and it sucks that that's rare like for a movie that's american to treat 
non-American uh, characters the same way as it does like right. the regular the regular old white folks but <laughs> this this part does that and I feel like that's a shift in view of them as well as the film mm -hmm. before this uh, the only Indian characters we had was the uh, I don't know what his title would be on the train who was kind of in charge of everything there but he was adversarial to them because he was trying to keep order on his train and they were of course assholes and the woman on the train who was kind of just a conquest for jason schwartzman's character and there weren't any great like indian representation there and it's not like we have a big full stories of these characters but we do have them being treated with the same humanity by the view of uh, of the audience True. which we didn't get earlier and the villagers who have now undergone some sort of the same loss as the three main characters. But I think it's really important that th how they react, because it's completely opposite from our three, three brothers. And I think it's this different reaction that kind of resets their path. Because the villagers, they, uh, they welcome them, they share with them. And the boy himself has been uh, cremated, so he's light, he's airy, he's ash, he's one with the world again. Uh -huh. And his death has brought all these people together. And it's not like a celebration exactly, but it has demonstrated the bonds of this community. Mm -hmm. While their mother's departure and their father's death only serve to, to separate the three of them. Mm -hmm. And it's symbolically represented represented with all of those material objects especially the luggage and it's always something that's weighing them down mm -hmm. so it's starkly in contrast to how to how death and mourning is depicted in this village and i feel this scene in different hands in a different american film would go very differently M most likely they would save the boy and then become some kind of savior right. type but or the boy would die, and then it would be about how the death has affected our three Americans. Right. But I don't think that's the case here. No. Like, they're clearly affected by the death. But I think the really affecting thing upon them is the reaction and um, embrace of the villagers. That's what changes them more than seeing someone die. Because mm -hmm. they've been through a death before. They've True. been through the death of their father. And that's going to be more meaningful, of course. <laughs> But what changes how they're looking at things is not the tragedy of his death, of the boy's death, but rather the example the villagers put forth of how they are maybe even strengthened, but at least comforted in their like community. Yeah. And that's something they haven't seen before. And I think that's what guides them through the next half of the movie they they realize that there is strength in unity which yeah. they had not uh seen at any point in the True. past i definitely agree with that i don't know that i like noticed it overtly while i was watching the movie but i definitely think that that was something that popped out yeah, and I think in some points they do make it a little more obvious because they take time to put Adrian Brody with that baby in the village. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's the one who's like terrified of this baby he's about to have. <laughs> and then he just looks at them, the parents with this baby, and he gets to hold it. And it's just a, a, 
a really calm moment mm-hmm. and it's time for him to reflect and you can kind of see that going on. I hope it was Adrian Brody in that scene. It was him, right? It was, yeah. I was going to say, that would be silly if they put Schwartzman in there. No, but... it was Adrian Brody. So you get to see him working on his, all of his stuff at that point, too. And then, of course, they link it to the abandonment by the mother and the death of the father even more by putting that flashback right in the middle of all of this as well. So we get to see these two funerals uh, juxtaposed with each other to, huh. sh- to really highlight the differences of how both of these groups are handling the death. Right. What did you think of the flashback sequence? Oh, to the funeral? I found it... It was an interesting way, but also kind of true to life of how they were dealing with the death of their father. Like one wanted to fix the car, or one wanted to take the car. One wanted to like, was like happy when the luggage was reunited. And then the other one just wanted to like, make sure everyone else was okay. And like, wasn't really dealing with what was going on. Yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with Owen Wilson wanting to make sure everyone was okay or as much as I feel like he wanted to have some sort of control over it perhaps that's a better way of putting it I think he definitely stepped into that parent role as soon as their father died or like he seemed to just like click right like he's like okay I have to take care of these two rowdy individuals so let's like do it I also liked how forgiving the mechanic was because when he's just like, oh, you're the sons. And then they're they're acting insane. They're like running around, taking cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he just lets it go because he's like, they're dealing with something now. Yeah. And I did like how this death affected them because how irrational Adrian Brody was. But I it still seemed within the realm of reason to me. Yeah. It seemed like I could see that character behaving that way because he just... He didn't know what to do. And it seems like he still doesn't. It's been maybe a year since the father's death, something like that. Yeah. And he's still not dealing with it well at all. No. None of them are, really. It seems like it affects the other two less. Or I think it's just in different ways. Yeah, maybe. It just seems like the um, the abandonment issues they're dealing with the other two are less to do with the father and more with the mother. Mm. But I'm not sure about that. But then we come back to the funeral in India for that boy. I did like the sequence when they go on the bus and then they get called to come off. Yes. And if that was in the first third of the movie, there would be a big argument of like, oh, I don't want to go here. Let's not do this. But they've gone through this thing and they've gone through it together. So when they say we're invited to the funeral, there's no words. They just get off the bus. Yeah. And then they go to the funeral. And they just do it. And we have that one great shot. It's a slow motion of them walking up, and it's uh, Strangers by the Kinks, which the lyrics then are like, um, how's it go? It says, we are one. As they are like being united and joining into this uh, in this community. Yeah. And again, perhaps heavy-handed with the lyrics because a lot of the English music in this is is directly about what's happening. Yeah, I kind of like that. kind of worked for me. I also just love the kinks, so I'm going to forgive that. And then there's the Rolling Stones song later, which is a not well-known one of theirs perhaps, with probably in my top 5 yeah, favorite I Rolling Stones like songs. Yeah, I do like that one. 
And that's really fitting for the the theme of the movies in general, because like the first words in that are, well, I'm not going to sing it, but I had to sing it in my mind to be able to know the words. It says, well, you've got your diamonds and you've got your pretty clothes and the show. Well, you've got your diamonds and you've got your pretty clothes and the chauffeur drives your car. You let everybody know But don't play with me Cause you're playing with fire And this movie's all about them with their material possessions uh-huh. and grasping onto these things that they think have meaning. But then they get into what's dangerous for them and that's like kind of getting into the real emotional core of the problem. Right. That's the, that's the fire they're playing with perhaps. True. No, I, I I always love, I feel like I'm just sitting here listening to you, but you've got some really good <laughs> points this week and I'm really enjoying it. Um, but today they're all coming out from the conversation, right? Right. Like I didn't have all this stuff before, but the more we talk about it, I'm like, oh, you know what? This fits. Because <laughs> you need someone else's point of view. Of to, course. Of you course. tell me things that I didn't see because you're, you're coming at it in a yeah. different way than I am. I did have to mention uh, in all of the funeral stuff in the village that there's this room like in the background that you can just hear wailing coming from Mm -hmm. constantly. So hopefully you'll never have to deal with Indian funerals, but it's very um, demonstrative. They're hard. There'll just be like a room of crying people for two days and you just go to that room and you just cry real loud. It's it's rough. They're they're something. Yeah, I've never been... But I've been around you when you've been at a funeral. So I like I think you told me a little bit about it, but it definitely seemed to be hard. Yeah. And how Irfan Khan's character faints. In yeah. It. I don't know if I've been to an Indian funeral where someone doesn't faint. Really? Yeah, there's a lot of fainting, it seems. All cultures do it differently, and it's about the mourning, but this one seems not helpful to the people affected most they're Mm. strained even more by so much of the things they have to do so by the time you get to the funeral like often the the children of the person who died has been doing stuff for like 48 hours straight right and hasn't slept and then you're at the funeral and then yeah so there's a lot of fainting oh wow (laughs) noted there's some which is a lot i'll file that away in my future file I guess we should talk a little bit about the representation of India as a whole in this, because that's something this movie was criticized for a good bit. And I'm, I'm, I'm no expert, but I'm of Indian descent. I've only spent like a couple of months in India, but it's probably more than than most people yeah, who watch sure. it. I'll, I'll bring it to you first, maybe. The what, what did you think about it? So I was going to ask you if this was like. A good representation because there's that scene where they're in the gurdwara and like you were like oh it's like small but you've been to a gurdwara i have doesn't it look just like that it does and it's the i was gonna say this in the car yesterday when we were listening to the soundtrack but it's that like bell sound i don't know how else to describe it but i heard that in another song that like wasn't it wasn't like an like an indian song um but i heard that sound in it and i was like oh it's it's like being a good one <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk about music at all except for like the uh, the english stuff yeah but oh, i i love the music i own the soundtrack to this
all of the um, what's the director's name? Shataiji Trai. A lot of his stuff from the 50s, not the Apu trilogy, which I thought it was, but it's from his other works. Oh. That's what I made a mistake of saying in the first episode of this. And a lot of Merchant Ivory stuff, and the soundtrack is amazing. This movie has no original score at all. There's no mu- music made for it. Oh, it's really? It's all just uh, other songs. That's surprising, because that's not usually like a Hollywood film thing. No. Usually there's at least one original song. Like even Cats, the musical that has been on Broadway for 900 years, had original songs in it. Yeah, but even not just that, but like the original score, meaning like any sort of music throughout the movie, there's none in this that's made for this. It's all stuff either from the 50s Indian movies or a lot of like 70s British stuff. Um, But yeah, going back to the, the representation of India, I didn't have a problem with it. I do in 90% of non-Indian movies how India is depicted as always like really bad. Not like negative, but just do some research. Yeah. It always bothers me when like there's a few things you see a lot. Uh, People wearing religious turbans because there's a difference in the types of turban. Right. So people who are wearing the religious ones, but then they don't have a beard. And I was like, if you were of that religion to wear that, you you would would have never have shaved in your life. That's part of the thing. And they mix and match religions and languages that don't go together because they're just like, yeah, it's all brown, whatever. Uh. Right? There's so many movies where they'll have like a picture of a Hindu god and a Sikh god at the same time because they're like, yeah, it's just all, it's all uh, Indian gods, right? It's all that thing, yeah. It's not. It's like you wouldn't wear a Star of David and a cross probably. Yeah. So it's the same way. I remember Kumail Nanjiani talking about working on Silicon Valley and how they, the set design for his room, they kept putting up both Muslim and Hindu things. And he's like, guys, you got to pick one. Like, which one is he? You <laughs> what can't. am I? Yeah. And uh, so there's, I didn't find anything like that. And yes, people are, are dressed more over the top, mm-hmm. but I take that as a Wes Anderson thing, not a yeah. like, look how crazy it is in India. True. Because most of the just people on the streets, it's like, yeah, that's exactly how they dress. Of course, the uniforms are much more elaborate and yeah. colorful in this, but that's a Wes Anderson but that's like, thing. Everything's more elaborate and yes. colorful because it's Wes Anderson. Yeah. If you look at Grand Budapest Hotel, I'm not like, oh, the Swiss Alps are all purple, huh? And it's like, no, that's just him doing it. So... Everything is is pretty heightened, but I don't, I didn't have really like any problems with how India was shown. In fact, I thought so many of the places, one of the places I've actually been to, it, that's just it. It just looks like that. Huh. Yeah. I do look forward to seeing India at some point because it looks amazing. It is. It's a, it's a lot, but it's definitely <laughs> worth it. It was one of the first big trips I ever did by myself, and it was terrifying to start there, but I... It set me up for like a life of uh, of traveling. Yeah. And now you live here. Now I live in Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> in our 900 square foot condo. <laughs> Not for long. Not for long. Yeah. So I guess just to address all of that. Yeah, it is the story of white American heterosexual men. But the, it is the story of them though, right? And they interact with the Indian world. I don't feel like the... 
India is just some caricature. I feel like it is these people going there. And I don't think it's a part of that whole trend. I feel like it's a criticism of it because they do go there thinking like, we're going on a spiritual journey. And that is quickly like quashed. That's not something that you can just go do. And they realize that halfway through the movie. So I don't think it's problematic in a lot of the ways that other movies are of that they're just like using this culture as a as a backdrop i felt like they were as immersed into it as they could be but these characters wouldn't be the ones that are like just going to live there right yeah they go there and then they experience things not because they're unique to India, but they just happen to be doing that in India. They experience uh, humanity that they hadn't in their life before. And it's not this take of like, oh, they're in an exotic land and that's why they can do this. It's that they went to a place and they found a loving community in that one village. And that's something they hadn't experienced before. And it seems like it's outside of cultural bounds. Mm -hmm. It just happened to be there. Yeah. That whole, like village scene really like brought it home for me i liked that Mm -hmm. i liked it a lot and it it seemed to me very true to the culture um which is why i wanted to like ask you off podcast before but i forgot um but yeah i just wanted to make sure that i wasn't like assuming that that was it was like what india was like yeah and then getting it wrong because i try not to do that (laughs) i try not to be like oh this is a thing everyone does and like and this is the movie I think that does that the least. There's yeah. so many things, like even us as Canadians, we look at any American TV show and they're like, oh, this is what you do in Canada. And I was like, I've never heard that or no. said that in my life. But it's just a through line in in American TV shows now that it's become yeah. that. And I feel like this is pretty free of that. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, I think, and they were saying like, oh, it's like hard to read this thing that we're reading because the author is canadian and they tend to put a in a lot and like and i was like no an author i've never seen a written down no and i'm like that's not a thing it's unless like, it's a joke t-shirt that we sell exactly. like souvenir stands for americans that come here if people do say a it's like um or like uh like it's it's just like a filler word almost but yeah, you'd never see it written. And I was getting kind of upset while I was listening to it because I was like, no, like we don't write A in like emails. Like I'm not like. I'm going to start. How about next Tuesday, A? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to start, eh? <laughs> but yeah, I just I found that upsetting. And I feel like that's something that is like commonly misconstrued about Canada. And it's so like never going to be fixed. Yeah, we don't fucking talk like that, eh? No. Grab another beer, eh? Is that your Canadian accent? Yeah. Do you get to go? Just fucking give her, Samantha. I can't. Just do it. I feel like I did a good accent the other day. So then that seems to have uh, given them some sort of resolution and they go to fly home. But of course, they stop and realize that they have to go uh, confront their mother, even though she doesn't want to see them. I found this like the whole mother sequence in the convent, I guess. Very confusing and, like, kind of throwaway-ish. Like, it didn't really add much to the story. What was confusing about it? I don't know. I feel like it. she didn't need to be in the movie. And I feel like the extra time they spent on it was just kind of, like, too much extra, almost. I felt like it would have been really good if the mother hadn't been there at all. And said, like, oh, this is where I live. And then, like, nobody knows of her. Like, she's really trying to hide herself. 
I think that would leave it too open-ended. Right. And although she does leave, I think the reason they go there, meet her, and get abandoned again is that maybe what this movie is saying is that, like, you can't fix everything. Mm -hmm. You can't resolve all of your issues. Right. Sometimes that's just the way things are, and it's up to you to move on despite them. Like, we get maybe hints of that in the village scene, because we have this group coming together, not questioning why this boy died, Mm -hmm. but he did. And yes, they're upset about it, but they do, they don't forget, but they move on. Right. The three of them have been unable to move on after their mother's abandonment, or perhaps after the father's death, depending on which one, to varying degrees of both. But having them go meet the mother... You think that they're going to get some sort of closure, but then she abandons them again. And that's their closure. Right. It's not neat and tidy in a typical movie way, but it is kind of what they needed because Uh it shows them like some things you just don't fix. Mm -hmm. Some things are broken and you go and you move on despite them. Well said. That's what I think. (laughs) No, I think that's very well said. And I think that that is uh, better than I could have like brought it all together. Well, maybe let's just move on and um, let's go to the very end. And we have these shots of everyone that we've met in the movie, including some people that we didn't even meet in this because like Natalie Portman's character is in there. And we have shots of all of them and they're all on this train, but they're not actually on the train. Yeah. Of course. It's a, it's a fun little bit that he does to bring, uh, he, Wes Anderson does to bring everybody in and have them in the same kind of... uh, space but not it's Mm -hmm. a very very fun aesthetic i thought how'd you like that um i thought that was fun because you see the brothers and then you see like people that they've been talking about the entire movie or who were in the beginning of the movie and now are in the end or like whatever but i think that i think it was like a neat way to tie it up do you have a, a reading on what this means that there's some resolution Sure. Full like, circle. I don't know. Yeah, I think you could... Because they started on a train and they end on a train. That's true as well. Yeah. I think like a, a basic reading is you could say that like everyone is on their own journey in some way. Like they're all going somewhere. Even yeah. if they're in a hotel room, they're all on this journey. But then maybe you could say that everyone's on the journey together because they're on this same train. Well, man. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe we could take it further because there's this line earlier about... Like, how could we get lost? The train's on rails. Do you remember that part? Yeah. So maybe with that, there's a suggestion here about us thinking that we can guide things. But in reality, there is um, maybe not predestination, but at least some sort of randomness to things that is beyond our control. So even if you think you're on a guided path and you have a direction, you're like, that's what I'm doing. You can still get lost along the way. Right. And they're all kind of in this all together, right? They're all, so many of these people think they have a direction and then something else happens, right? And I think maybe that's what the movie's about. Like along with what I was saying about sometimes things are just bad and you have to move on. Mm -hmm. It's also about that you can't force your journey you can't be a train on rails. Even trains get lost sometimes, right? You're really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a movie not about those um, eat, pray, love epiphanies, but uh-huh. it's about thinking you've gotten there and then realizing, like, no, you had no idea what you were doing because you can't force discovery. You can't force self-discovery, I think, is what a big mm-hmm. part of it is. 
I don't know. I feel like I said you're everything. You're doing that I really need. well, and I feel like you could just do this podcast yourself because <laughs> you're like way better at this than I am today. I think I might just be tired. Me too. <laughs> but I get tired and I get uh, philosophical. Yes, I, I don't have that skill. I just get tired and I get bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't remember what I just said, but I think it was Oh, good. so like me every time we podcast. <laughs> Should we just uh, wrap it up, I guess? I think so. We talked about how they drop the bangs, they leave the luggage, yeah. and they're moving on. Yeah. We we never talked about how um, Owen Wilson admitted that he was trying to kill himself, We and then they just gloss over that. Oh, yeah. See, I felt like it wasn't like a super important part of the movie. The main character tried to kill himself. <laughs> I know, I know. It's pretty big. But it just like wasn't focused on. Yeah. Like, they looked at him, but nobody ever brought it up again. I don't know. It felt a little unimportant to me. But it was like the impetus to this whole journey, yeah. right? It was his near-death experience that made him want to reunite with his brothers. Yeah. So I guess like something good came out of it, right? Because it seems like they are. They are in a better place mm-hmm. in the end. We can wrap this all up on a high note. Yeah. They, I think all three of them are in better places. I think so. I think so. And they have like a better relationship altogether. Well, I'm only confusing myself further. So perhaps <laughs> we should end there for today. Sure. Well, that was that was... A very good movie that I really liked and that you loved. Sure, yeah. If we're saying 8 out of 10 is a love, I love it. Okay. Sounds good. I think I'm like 7 out of 10. Well, we will see you next week when I reveal what we will be watching for the following week. (laughs) And uh, we'll have a couple spoiler-free things of the week that we're really into. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. (laughs) 